0: Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary.
1: I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to leading from the front where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And I'm excited to have the conversation today with today's guest, who was the founder of the executive coaching Institute. It was the first coaches training school in the world dedicated exclusively to developing executive coaches for top leaders. It does this across the globe. It did it in 40 countries Pretty exciting to be the first in anything. Coaching is one of the key skills that we try to teach to leaders and what leaders need to learn. Renamed Optimized International in 2007, he continues to work with business executives. He likes to focus on technology experts becoming business leaders, which is a big leap for technology experts. And uh, we know that that's a, a very interesting, specialized field for leaders. He specializes in helping excellent managers become outstanding leaders. And I I pulled this off of his uh, LinkedIn profile because it sounds an awful lot like making good bosses into great leaders to me. And we're going to talk about the parallels to all of that. He's the author of The Ultimate Sales Revolution, Sell Differently, Change the World, a best selling book in four categories on Amazon. Applying his three dimensions of leadership, leading self, leading others, leading teams. Well, that sounds like an inside-out approach to developing leaders to me, which resonates with leading from the front and resonates with my company, Staterius. He was elected to the Coaches Hall of Fame at the New England International Coach Federation, which is quite an achievement. We want to welcome today to Leading from the Front, Mr. Steve Leshansky, hi, Don no, Steve.
2: Gary, it's great to be here with you. I've been an admirer of your work for a long time. We have a lot in common.
1: Yes, we do. I I loved listening to you in the past, and some of the things that we've crossed our paths on, and some of the parallels. And I want to hear though, how did all this get started? You know, where did Steve get started, and what was the inspiration for the Executive Coaching Institute? So let's let's get to know Steve a little bit.
2: Well, you know what? I grew up as an entrepreneur starting very, very young. I always ran businesses You know, from a lawn mowing business when I was 13. I started before that, but that was the first significant business where I was making pretty decent money being a young kid. And I always was entrepreneurial. I used to run companies. I built some toy companies up to $10 million. And my whole point was, I always was interested in what's going to make people more successful. Not just me, but the people around me. And so that really led me to be a student of leadership and studying a lot of the best and the brightest and being educated by a mentor who was my business partner for three years and had built from scratch a $1.6 billion business and uh, taught me things you'd never even learn in college. And he never went to college. He was the CEO from this little $8 million idea to $1.6 billion when he left. Anyway, I learned a lot you know, doing it, and I wanted to bring that. My real passion is seeing leadership really spread around the world. So when you start to talk about how to get to executive coaching, I started this business in 1992, and I was looking for something that would be catchy and a hook, something that would get people's attention because I don't want to tell them about me. I want to find out about them. And then we can see where the synergy exists. So I came up with this concept of executive coach, which was almost unheard of back then. Nobody had really heard anything. So everybody I went to would say, are you interested in some executive coaching? And they said, wow, that's interesting. What's that? Yeah. So within six years, a lot of people were saying, oh, I've heard about executive coaching, and then I was determined to really set the standards for what great coaching looks like. And I created the Executive Coaching Institute, which was really built around my three-dimensional leadership model. As you said, leading self, leading others, leading teams, personal effectiveness, interpersonal effectiveness, organizational effectiveness. It was a model that uh, really transformed a lot of lives. And honestly, I wasn't interested in coaching coaches, I was interested in building collaborators. And the one great thing about teaching is it forces you to really categorize and optimize your own work, because if you can teach it, it usually means you have a little more clarity about it so it
1: was oh if you can teach it that's everything right you want to learn something teach it oh, that's what happened it.
2: for me it really right. helped me to really raise my standards with everything I did and build systems and a lot of my work around the world came out of doing that three-dimensional leadership I built novartis global well, back up let's back up for a second I want to stop you because we're,
1: you know we we talk about this this three-dimensional leadership model as if it was always there yes yeah. you know it came out of the thin air right But <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that there was a development process that you went through with your master Mentors, was your experience from the time you were, you know, mowing lawns when you were 13, which I did that. I had a paper route, you know, we tended to do that uh, at a young age back then to make a few bucks. What brought you, what was the path that brought you to create this three dimensional leadership model?
2: As usual, Gary, brilliant question. You know, part of what it was was asking the question, you know, what makes people more successful? What is it that leads to success? And I started, I I have a background having studied with somebody who really taught me what I call phenomenology or ontology, the study of what is. So beyond the story about what's going on, I want to know the phenomena that's driving that. And when I started Mm -hmm. to look around, I started to find that the characteristics that made people successful were these big three. And I wanted to categorize them in a way you could capture them. They were personally effective. They had huge congruence with their own vision, mission, values. So that's personal effectiveness. That's the ultimate in personal effectiveness is that you know level of fulfillment that comes from being consistent with your vision, your mission, your values, and who you are, your identity. The other category that I started to see is people who were amazing about creating value with everybody they dealt with. And that's interpersonal effectiveness to me. It's not about you're a great communicator, you're smooth, you're suave, you know, you got charisma. No, it's about you engage people best by delivering value to them. And then I also started to look about what, who are, who are the people and what are they doing that allows a team or an organization to thrive, to grow, to be successful. And what I started to see is some of the elements that I call leadership. And um, so I started to say, "Wow, that seems to cover everything. It's you. It's the people you touch and talk with, and it's the people that are in your organization. What else could there be?
1: Well, it, so I'm gonna, i going I want to take the first two and and kind of unpack that a little bit because it's such a powerful message that people need to understand that if you're going to be an authentic leader and lead, it's like people focus on, seeing leaders and what they do well with organizations or a, a nation or you know other people and they don't realize that when you unpack it and you get down to it the person you said you help people know who they are so the question that i i when i meditate every day the first question i ask myself is who am i and it's really understanding that level of authenticity at our core value and knowing who i am that allows me the, the next step that you said was to engage people If you're authentic and interestingly enough, when you said it to engage people, you didn't say to engage people in a business. You didn't say to engage people in an organization. What we found about leaders is they engage people all the time. It doesn't matter if they're going to the grocery store, if they're driving on the highway, they show up as the same authentic person everywhere isn't that what, isn't that kind of what you see? So it's inside out. First, I know who I am. Then I I share who I am with everyone. So it becomes authentic and consistent and always the same. Then, and only then can I lead organizations effectively.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting, Gary. I don't know if I would take it that sequentially. I absolutely agree with your premise that that's what it takes to be successful. But here's what I found is that Usually, if you look at the three different dimensions of personal, interpersonal, and organizational, you'll find somebody has a greater strength in one of those three. They'll have a secondary strength in another one of those three, and one of them will be bringing up the rear. Now, when you find really, truly great leaders, I've always said the best leaders I've ever met were the best human beings I've ever met. And when I say bringing up the rear, it doesn't mean it's a problem. It just means it's a lagging indicator. So often what I've found and this is fascinating to me some of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with were brilliant communicators. They knew how to create value for their people. They were spectacular leaders at having a vision and being able to engage and align an organization around that. And somehow the weakness sometimes was them not taking care of themselves. And it's not that that was a weakness, like there was a problem there. But, you know, that was always the third consideration after they say, how am I doing with my people? How's our organization doing? Then they'd step back and say, how am I doing? Now, I agree with you that this, the inner strength that somebody has, the individual personal strength that somebody has through congruence with their identity, through their values, through their sense of purpose and mission is one of the strongest foundations to work with. And I think it allows them to evolve the other two faster. But it's fascinating to me as I've studied people and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people that I've worked closely with over the years, that sometimes the individual is actually the lagging indicator, not always. And it's not usually with good leaders a problem, but it's like, why are you the last person you take care of?
1: (laughs) Well, you make it you make a great point. And, And I'm glad you clarified that because it's not a linear Thing It's a process of life. These three aspects that you're talking about, interpersonal, personal, interpersonal, organizational, are it, it's each step in our life is a learning step. And we are constantly assessing, great leaders are constantly assessing where they're at. The challenge for a lot of leaders is this, what I, I'm going to call the self-service balance. It's the balance of giving service to others. And uh, I talk about this on other programs all the time. It's not servant leadership. It's service leadership. Agreed. Right? So I'm giving service and it's my responsibility. And I take that very, very seriously, almost to my own personal detriment, like you were saying. And sometimes we need either a reminder from ourselves or those around us to say, hey, Steve, you know, you need to take a step back and take care of yourself a little bit. And just maybe by doing that, we can step up and we've got your back. We'll take care of you so that you can come back strong, come back healthy, come back taking care of yourself. Because I agree, too many people sacrifice themselves for the organization and for the team. And that in the long run, it's okay to sacrifice yourself at times. There's a need. But if you keep doing it, you're eventually not going to be part of the team.
2: Well, Gary, I I totally agree with you. What I start to see is the quality of balance among those three dimensions is where you start to find the greatest strength. And balance is not having a fix like, well, we got a 33, 33, 33. To me, balance is being able to recover your center. And sometimes the balance is taking care of the personal. Sometimes the balance is taking care of the people right around you. Sometimes the balance is paying attention to an extreme degree to the organization. And it doesn't make any difference where you are. It's a dynamic among the three dimensions. As long as you can maintain your center and recover your center quickly and easily, you're probably well balanced enough. The challenge is when they go out of balance and all of a sudden, you know, they're starting to feel badly, they're starting to get sick, uh, they're starting to lose contact with their direct reports. You're starting to see the organization's not moving where it wants to move. So being able to maintain the dynamism and the interactivity of those three dimensions so that they're well-balanced is really the key to ultimate success.
1: Well, I I just wrote this quote down because I I just love this. And I'm going to use your new definition of balance is the process of recovering your center. Yes. And I I, I love that phrase. So let's get personal. You know me. I love to get personal. I love it.
2: Yeah.
1: What? Tell me about a time when you found yourself imbalanced and you had to recover from that, or you've helped maybe in your coaching you without using names and and talking about somebody with a name, but somebody you helped recover their balance to be able to get back to their center. Because I think this is something that we all resonate with.
2: Well, let me tell you a really personal story because, you know, I built this company from nothing to $10 million. And then we had our bank loan called. We had a $2 million line of credit that was fully secured in two different ways. And our bank, you know, this is 1991, second largest bank in New England went out of business. We were with a very solid bank. And uh, they had wow. all these 5A clients on the street. We were growing 50% a year. We had, you know, average receivable was $300, even though we had a multi million dollar receivable. And we got paid very well. We also had standby letters of credit, unusual financing. And the bank just had a lot more easy, big clients they could draw, and they could only handle so many. So they actually called our loan, put us out of business. And I had been getting a message, an internal message to get out of the toy business. I'd had enough. And I was procrastinating. And so I got the bank to get me out of the toy business. My first client was a friend in the business who said, come to San Francisco, my favorite city at the time. And I'll give you half my business because I just helped him turn around from almost bankrupt to getting into Kmart, Walmart, Target and a bunch of other places. So I knew how to do that. And I had to really reflect and say, you know, my passion is not the toy business. Yes, I could make money, but you know what? I'm going to go with my passion this time. I kind of fell into the toy business. I was good at it. I did it for a bunch of years. I built businesses. You know, I built one company to five million. I built another company to 10 million. It was fun, but it wasn't really that compelling. It wasn't my vision of serving the world. It was just a good place to be, and I was supporting my family and having a good time and learning a lot and having a laboratory to work on called the 50 people who work for me. And uh, that particular client I continued with, I helped him sell his company for $10 million three years down the road. And uh, I've continued to do this ever since. I'm totally, I always used to joke in the early days, he's rich, I'm fulfilled. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I, I I know the feeling. Uh, I I did that as an employee when I uh, grew several companies and vice president of sales and marketing. Didn't realize that when I was hired, I was hired to turn it around. But I didn't read the small print. It's very very small print, Steve. I didn't. I don't think anybody could read it. What it said was, is when you increase my revenue to this level, we're going to fire you. And and I I didn't see that. So but. Very much like you, I was building these companies and really I was enjoying the work because of the people we got to engage with every day. And I'm a lifelong learner like yourself. So every experience to me was a learning experience. And I don't know why, but I had this sense that I would be doing something great someday. I didn't think it was selling technology or selling software for Novell or selling computers for our systems integration company here in Raleigh, North Carolina. But I enjoyed the work because I enjoyed the people. Now, now we get to do what we love to do every single day in this. And, and at the same time, I will tell you this process of recovering my center during this pandemic, this strange thing that's going on where we're doing a lot of things virtually and, um, I didn't lose any business doing it. I typically would take four or five weeks a year off, block time out to to recharge my batteries because I work seven days a week. I mean, I, and, and it doesn't feel like work to me, but I do a little work here, a little work there. Okay. And then I realized about a month ago, I had not taken any vacation the first half of this year. And that was very, very unusual for me. And it's funny how we can get unbalanced sometimes without even knowing it. And, you know, my wife said something to me. My brother said something to me. And then I realized, and I took the week of 4th of July off. It was freaking amazing, you know,
2: getting back to my center. Gary, you know what I find? Vacation, it's a really interesting word. And for a lot of people, they need to vacate what they're doing. You and I love what we do so much. I don't need to vacate. I just have a lot of other passions, a lot of other people I like spending my time with. So I don't need to vacate what I do because I love it so much. It's not work when you love what you're doing that much. But my great lesson in terms of time when I was running these small companies and I had this mentor and built this business, he sat down with me and he said one day, he said, when's the last time you took a vacation? Oh, come on. We're looking at the balance sheet. He looks at me. When's the last time you took a vacation? I said, five months ago. How long? Oh, come on. How long? I said, five days. He said, a long weekend. I said, yeah. I said, but I'm an entrepreneur, I'm here to work. I, you know, it's 24 seven is the way. He said, look, I ran a $1.6 billion business with 32 divisions and a corporate st- and a corporate staff of seven people. And I insisted every one of my people take at least a, a, qu- a week, a quarter off. Because if you're not, you're not thinking, you're not doing what it takes to be a leader. And I looked at him and I said, a week, a quarter off, I was running a little $10 million company with 50 people. I look at him and I said, "A week, a quarter off. Who's going to run the company?" He looks at me. He says, "So you have a management problem yep. too?" I knew. I knew he was going to say that. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. And I, I it would be changed my life. I'd never forget that conversation, 1988. And I've averaged six weeks a year off ever since then. And I always joke with my wife every time we go away on vacation, a new deal comes in. I said that means we need more vacation. And, you know, it's time with the family. Fortunately, my kids were young when this when I got this lesson. But, uh, you know, I have those extraordinary trips, those extraordinary times. And it's not that I need to leave what I do, but there are a lot of other parts of life. And I get my best thinking and renewal when I'm away. And it's so important. And I really challenge every one of my leaders to have that time to refresh themselves and to give their people a chance yeah. to step yeah. up.
1: Yeah. So much of it is just, as we talk about, it's, it's energy management. And and as entrepreneurs, and the excitement and the passion that we have for things, we forget what it feels like sometimes to get that refresh. And then we do it halfway through, like halfway through the week. I was like not looking at my computer. I was just playing tennis and playing with my dog and uh, spending more time with my wife. And it was like, wow, I really, I really like this. Maybe I should retire.
2: (laughs) Well, it's not retire. I'll tell you one of the great lessons of COVID for me has been to get better management of my day-to-day and yes. week-to-week calendar. Yes, And I started chunking my time, so it's not that I need to go away, but within a week, you know, the question is, what's my ideal week look like? I mean, allocating that time for clients, allocating that time for writing and speaking, allocating that time to catch up on, you know, reading the books that I need to keep up with. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's been a really interesting, progress. And, and, you know, when I'm traveling here and there before this happened, it was a little bit harder to do that. You know, I chunked my time out for reading at the airport or in the hotel at night and now it's okay. It's on my calendar.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a great point. Another great point. We talk about, uh, you're saying allocating your time because there's no such thing as time management. we talk and you just described it. It's priority management. It's your right, priorities, exactly. you, you schedule those priorities. And interestingly enough, when you put an hour in your schedule to do some reading, a lot of times
2: you actually do the reading. <laughs> you know? Yeah, really. Well, you know, Gary, I want to talk about allocation. Yeah. I always tell my clients one of the most important talents, skills, and practices they could ever have is what I call allocation of resources. You know, we start to look at from our current income, we take a certain percentage and put it aside. So we have a future that could be retirement or you know, the ability to choose even better what we're gonna do. So we're taking current resources and allocating them for the future. Our most challenging current resource for most executives and leaders is their time. And if you don't take aside some of your time to think about the future, the quality of your future is gonna be rather poor. So I always talk about how are you allocating your resources and primarily your time and your energy? Because you've got to say how much percentage of your time is on the daily, how much percentage of your time is on the future, how much percentage of the time is on developing your team. And, oh, how much percentage of the time is left open for the I don't know what will happen, but I know something will time that goes on for everybody. What I feel what I find is people fill their calendar and don't allow for the daily occurrence of, hey, boss, what about this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so here's here's. One of my uh, thoughts and philosophies on coaching, and I I will tell people all the time, I can describe the vision of when I'm done coaching an executive. And I'd like your opinion on this one, Steve. This is what it looks like. I walk into their office for our coaching session and they're looking out the window and I say, what are you doing? They say, well, I just had a few things I wanted to think about before you came here today. I said, that's awesome. I think we're done here. What I what I just wrote down is it requires a pause in the activity. We get into this activity trap, just like we it's like going, 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 going. And we require in our schedule a pause. And to me, with the executive is looking out the window and contemplating the next 10 minutes, the next two days, the next year, and thinking for the future, that's when the coaching can be pretty much over in terms of a professional coach they should be able to use their staff and people around them and other uh, people to mentor and help them kind of stay in that center and that balance because they're pausing. What do you think about that?
2: Well, uh, let me tell you, it's more than a pause. I think it's a very important daily practice and I call it thinking time. And I challenge every one of my leaders. If you don't have at least a half hour a day on your calendar, whether you want to break it up into two 15-minute segments or a 30-minute segment to do thinking time and here's the three questions of thinking time what's working best that we should be leveraging what's most challenging that we need to mitigate and how does this affect my priorities for this day this week and this month and if you don't think those things on an almost daily basis and i say almost daily i would say the smartest ones do it daily then you're not really doing the kind of thinking that a leader needs to, th- to need to do. So it's not just a pause, it's this practice of thinking time. And the more, you know, Henry Ford said it, he said, the leader who has the most time to think will be the most successful, that's a paraphrase. That's essentially what he says, and if you're not thinking, you're not gonna be successful. And thinking doesn't mean reacting, thinking means stepping back and saying, What's working? What's not working? What do I need to really focus on as a priority?
1: So let me, let me ask you, let's, let's talk about what the, what the obstacles are for that. What is, what do you think in the work that you've done with coaching leaders, coaching all these executives, especially technologists, as you talk about technologists and being a mechanical engineer and working in technology, I, I have a technology mind. I've got a, you know, a scientific mind, having a doctorate and all that stuff, right? My dad was an engineer, you know, so I was brought up in that environment. What do you think is the biggest obstacles to these technologists or to anyone to have this thinking time? What do you, what do you think the obstacles are and how do they overcome them?
2: I'll tell you what the single greatest obstacle to being able to have thinking time, which is the same as what I would say is the single greatest obstacle to most leaders is a lack of clear priorities. And I have this practice, I always give them, I say, listen, it's the 50 choices dilemma. And I ask this of every one of my leaders at one point or another, usually very early on. I say, you got 50 things to do. For some of them, it's a really good day if they only have 50 things to do. Yeah. I said, you got two choices. You can take care of priorities one, two, and three, you never touch the other 47, or you take care of priorities four to 50, you never touch one, two, and three. What's your choice? And of course, everybody knows common sense is you choose priorities one, two, and three. And we always talk about common sense is not common practice. And the reason for that is one of three things. Number one, they don't know what priorities one, two, and three are, back to thinking time. Number two, they haven't communicated priorities one, two, and three, back to communicating after you've done your thinking time. And number three is they're too busy to think about what they should be doing. They're just going through their to-do list. So lack of clarity, lack of communication, lack of even being attentive to it are the biggest obstacles. And I think to me, lack of prioritization is the single greatest impediment to progress for a leader in an organization.
1: I, I love that because number two, lack of clarification and communication of it is one of the biggest challenges most organizations have in terms of alignment. And I actually have an exercise, I'll tell you real quick uh, as we wrap up. And I wanna ask you one final question is is to write down your, your uh, priorities on a 3M sticker, on a bunch of 3M stickers, you got 15 priorities, write them down. If you think of your top 15, put them in priority order, put them on a piece of paper, take a Xerox copy of it. That's what, you know, we used to call it Xerox, you know, a a, uh, copy of it, right? And then take those priorities, mix them all up, hand them to your boss and ask that boss to put them in, in priority order. And then when they do, compare the two lists and see if they're anywhere near the same it's priority. Having priorities is absolutely a key. Aligning those priorities is the next level to me to be able to make sure that, because I, I might be working on number two priority and you're my boss and you go, why are you working on this? I thought we canceled that. And you're like, we did, <laughs> you
2: know,
1: I'm wasting my time.
2: Right. Right. So true.
1: So Steve, in, in this path, you went from uh, paper route to toys, to coaching to, you know, all these businesses and everything. This is really a fascinating career and always fun to look at the the, uh, process of our lives and how we've come up with all of these models to help others. If you could write yourself a letter and send it back to Steve 20 or 30 years ago and say, Steve, here's what I'd like you to focus on. This is what I think that would really help you in your life, in your business, in whatever it is you're working on, What would that letter say?
2: Wow, this is good. I'd say, first of all, from a a process point of view, focus on who you really are and serving that. Focus on what you really value and being congruent with that and develop your personal mission and follow it. And my personal mission was never to be in business. My personal mission was to make the world a better place. And particularly in a very certain way to really help people reconnect to their greatest talents, capabilities, and resources so they can produce meaningful and valuable results in the world. And that's my passion, it's one of my gifts, and I wish I had told myself that. I was doing it in a small way, running companies, dealing with clients and all that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, it's gotten clearer and clearer and more congruent, and I refuse to do anything but that now.
0: Yeah,
1: that's great, that's great. Yeah, so a couple of quick things. I'll tell you, sometimes when we're young, the first time I got to do any kind of public speaking was I was a second lieutenant in the army and was forced into a situation to speak in front of the troops for about an hour. I was so energized by it, but at 22 years old, I had no idea you could actually have a profession in public speaking. I mean, who wants to listen to me talk? I mean, I didn't know. And now I'm a you know certified speaking professional with the National Speakers Association, so but you mentioned uh, personal mission. I want to, I want our listeners to know that on my website at com. if you go on my homepage and scroll down, you can actually get a copy of my book, a CEO's journey and go down one more panel. And there's online, a downloadable document for you to write a personal mission statement. It is the first component of our first step of the seven steps of intentional leadership is to have that personal mission statement with you every day. So when you have a really, really, really bad day, but you authentically lived your mission statement, you can look in the mirror at the end of the day and say to yourself, this was a good day. So think about following Steve's advice, get to know who you are, what your values are, and understand that, live that, and it doesn't matter what else you do, you'll have a good day.
2: And a good life, Gary. And a
1: good life. In a good life, the process of life, as I said earlier, Steve, I want to thank you so very, very much for your, your insight, your wisdom. I've taken all kinds of notes here on some great stuff that uh, reinforces what we do at Staterius, which is to make good bosses into great leaders with compassion, accountability. And I think that what you shared with us today is so congruent with that. A few very, very important things that you highlighted that uh, will help us out. I, I just can't get out of my mind a process for recovering your center. I love that. The balance, the process of recovering your center. Thank you so much, Steve.
2: Gary, such a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: I am, Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thank you for listening to Leading from the Front. Be well.
0: Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com.